The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. If you would please open God's Word to Exodus chapter 16, chapter 19 rather, Exodus chapter 19. For 18 chapters now, we have seen in this book the God who saves. He's the God who saves from slavery. He's the God who saves from sin. He's the God who saved Israel from the Egyptians and is in the process of saving Israel from the evil within them, from their whining, from their wandering hearts, from their wanting to go back to Egypt instead of trust God. Now it's a turning point in the book where the God who saves, we're going to see, is going to be the God who speaks for the rest of the book. The God who speaks. He saved them at the sea. He's going to speak to them at Sinai now for the second half of the book. This is a turning point in the book, but this is also a turning point in redemptive history. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is God's word to Israel and for us. It's to Israel, but it's also this language is applied and used for us in the New Testament, as we'll see later. But last month we saw how the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of Man, There's mention of the kingdom in verse 6, a different kind of kingdom. We don't speak of our nation as a kingdom, but the United Kingdom last month was all over the world stage as there was a coronation for Charles as king. How many of you watched part of that or some clips of that online? Okay, so two months ago, I actually visited that very area, a lot of what we saw I had the privilege of of seeing with my daughter Annalie. We saw the palace. We saw the crown jewels. We saw Westminster Abbey and that throne. Um, I was actually more interested in Westminster Abbey. If I could see the Westminster Room where they met in the 1640s to craft one of the greatest confessions ever in the catechism that begins, the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? I asked the tour guide and Sadly, he wasn't quite sure where it was, but thought it might be closed, that room. But the UK today is, is, is very secular, and yet Scripture was heard. 
from there in that coronation broadcast. Colossians 1 was read uh, on the world stage about the supremacy of Christ over all. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ was quoted there. And there were actually prayers from Exodus 19, from what I just read, a part of that coronation ceremony. And these words from the moderator of the Church of Scotland, when he came to King Charles and handed him a Bible, he said these words, Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and of the gospel of God, he said, receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Those are true words. And we can pray that that people in the world would indeed receive, and, and even the king himself would indeed receive that gospel and treasure it for what it is. I saw pictures of old and young and princes and maidens, and the majesty of the king was on display. And I looked at Psalm 148. Listen to what it says. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers, young men and maidens together, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Psalm 47 says, God is the great king over all the earth. That psalm was actually quoted as a part of their liturgy too. I was reminded of King Louis XIV of France, who actually called himself the great. This is centuries ago. He died in 1715, actually reigned longer than Elizabeth reigned, and he planned his funeral to be majestic and, and, and matchless. And it was all the way he had designed it, where in this great cathedral, there was on his coffin, all the other lights were dim, but there was a single solitary light over his coffin. Some of you have heard this story, to to bring the limelight and all the attention to him, to symbolize his greatness to a dark world. But the minister who was presiding that funeral shocked the audience when he came and snuffed out the candle and said, only God is great. And and that's really the message of the book of Exodus. And and even a, a minister of Midian in chapter 18 basically says the same thing. Only God, only Yahweh is great in all of the earth. And that message is in the book of Exodus to be broadcast to the world. And it begins even in pagan Midian where Jethro is converted. It's going to go to pagan Canaan where Rahab and others will be converted. His power and his name, Exodus 9, the mission of Exodus is that his name and his power would be proclaimed to all the earth. And it begins in Exodus and it continues to this day. The book of Exodus shows God is sovereign. It shows his sovereignty, that he's over all. He's over all rulers and, and kings. He, he's, his supremacy, that he's above all gods. The gods of Egypt are nothing compared to him. And his self-sufficiency we see in Scripture as well. He's the I am. He's self-existent. And he's independent. God doesn't need or depend on anyone or anything. He's already said in this book. And yet, in this chapter... He talks about how he chooses and uses his people in a very special way as his very special possession. Chapter 19, verse 5, and and really the key verse, maybe of the whole book, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. This is the kind of kingdom that he's calling his people to be. In a couple of weeks, or week after this next week, our VBS is going to be focused on the kingdom of God and, and some of the elements that relate to our role in that kingdom. So we'll be praying about, be learning about. Many of you who are serving, you have a handbook and there's some devotionals that I encourage you to be reading that talk about the two kingdoms and talk about our role in this battle for truth. But this is a different kind of kingdom than the united kingdom or earthly kingdom. And yet, even in that UK broadcast in the coronation, they prayed words for King Charles to, quote, know the abundance of thy grace and the power of thy mercy, and that we may be made a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's historic language that comes right out of this text. and even comes out of the era when the British Empire possessed much of the earth and its treasure. But what God is saying here is that he owns, he owns all of the earth, but his people are his treasure to the earth, and there to be a kingdom of priests. If you watch the ceremony, you may have seen some Anglican special priests, but really in Scripture, we're all to be special priests. We'll look at that again. Last week, I quoted Revelation 1, how Jesus loves us and has made us a kingdom, priests to God. That's what Jesus has done. He's made us And in a sense, God is saying here in Exodus 19, his people are his crown jewels. His people are on display for the world to see his treasured possession. And this is a kingdom like no other kingdom. This is a king like no other king. This king lovingly carries and treasures his people in a way that no earthly monarch could. The high king of heaven lovingly carries, that's what this passage says, and treasures his people. And so the God who saves, we've been seeing the identity of God in the first 18 chapters. When we come into chapter 19, he's revealing the identity of his people and how he carries them and cares for them. And so as we think of the identity of God's people, there's three headings I want us to consider. How they are his saved who are secure in his wings. That's verse 4. They are his special possession who are treasured. That's verse 5. And then they are his set-apart people who are a kingdom of priests. Verses 1 through 3 set up the context. They've been going through the wilderness, and now they're coming to Mount Sinai. This is a fulfillment of God's promise. He was going to bring his people to this mountain. And when he brings them there, he is revealing more and more of his love and his heart. In fact, verses 4 through 6 have been called the, the heart of the Old Testament. God's deepest desires for their ultimate destiny. And and one writer says, really, everything else in the Old Testament, indeed, everything else in human history can be explained in terms of the covenant relationship that's described in these verses. And verse 4 is a summary of salvation. God is bringing out. God is lifting up. And God is drawing close. That's what verse 4 is talking about in the image of the, the eagle's wings. He's, he's bringing out, he's lifting up, and he is drawing 
close. And he's doing that for us who could never keep our hold on him. He's actually holding fast like a mighty eagle is the image. Carrying in verse 4. But before we look at that image of the eagle, let's start in the context of chapter 17. God had revealed himself as Yahweh our banner, the Lord our banner. A banner was something lifted up on high. It was a rallying point for for soldiers. It was a, a signal flag for battle. Battle or Banners gave nations identity and purpose. It also gave them security. When they would see their banner still waving, they knew it was not all lost. Even as we sing, as long as that star-spangled banner still waves, Francis Scott Key saying that we know it's not all lost. But also when you're under a banner, you're part of something bigger than yourself. That, that banner that you are under and representing is a reminder that it's not about you. You need to humbly remember it's about the kingdom. And we need to hear this today because our context and our world is shouting the opposite. It's all about you in our world. It's virtue signaling in our world. But pride is not a virtue. And, and equity and inclusion as it's being redefined today is, is different than what Scripture means. You guys know June is Pride Month where our world is or our nation is celebrating what the Bible calls sin. And, and people self-identify their, their gender as, as, as their identity. People lift up in, in all kinds of other ways too. Self is king in our culture. And even as the star-spangled banner waves, our governor has ordered rainbow flags in Sacramento and different places to wave under it. We need to pray even for people as that is a struggle as their employers do that, even not far from here. We are in a battle for truth. And like Moses, we can get weary as we see all kinds of things going on in our world. We can get weary as we see the banners of wokeness and political correctness even flying by those who profess God. We need to remember God's kingdom is not of this world. And we can't wave the white flag of surrender to the LGBT. We need to stand firm with our identity in the L-O-R-D. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, is our banner. And he can save from any sin. He can save from any sin. He is our security. The banner of the cross should move us to show compassion towards people who are different than us. It should give us courage to speak the truth in love. But your identity is not your gender. It's not how you self-identify. It's who you are before Christ that matters. And Christ calls his followers to deny self. We're called to follow him, not our heart. But your identity is not even your job. It's not even your stage of life. And I know we can talk like that defines us at times. But our identity is how God defines us. It's how God identifies us based on his word. God is the one who defines man and woman and marriage and love and what is best And it is in Christ that matters. It's in Christ that gives meaning to everything else. And we need to believe Christ rescues people from homosexuality. Christ can 
help people who are wanting to change their sexuality. Christ helps many also from their heterosexual sin too. And you might feel, and maybe in another sin or another area of life or whatever it is, you might feel that it's hard to change how you are. You might feel you're wired a certain way or that your desires are a certain way, but God can transform. God can truly change our orientation from sin to Him. And, and even sometimes where attractions that are broken continue, He will give us help to not live out those desires. But we need to understand we're not better than anyone else. We are all born in sin. We all have a bent to sins that can enslave us. But the good news of the Bible, and it's pictured here in Exodus, is that God is in the business of redeeming people from slavery, not leaving them just as they are. And what God does here for Israel, he shows not only his power to deliver them from bondage, but he's also giving us hope that he can deliver us as well. This is the God in verse 4 who speaks. The God who saves is the God who speaks. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So this is in the context here. Moses has gone up to God on the mountain of Sinai. He's gone up, but God's talking about how he has brought his people up to this place what he's done. And this is a powerful visual. This is maybe one of those metaphors we don't think about a lot. It's a powerful image of deliverance of a mighty eagle. I don't know if you've ever seen this mighty eagle swooping down, and it soars, and it flies from great distance, and it can snatch up and, and take to itself. And this image is used of salvation. It's really epic imagery. I mean, this is the, the imagery like in Narnia of Edmund being rescued, snatched by eagles from the clutches of the white witch. Or this is like in Middle Earth when the, the helpless little guys need rescuing from those horrible goblins and the eagles come in or at Mount Doom when all seems lost and these great eagles come and, and take them to their destination. That they're rescued and they're carried away on these mighty and majestic Evil's, eagle's wings, saved from evil, saved hobbit style, we could say. This is the true Lord of the Rings and all. This is the, the true lion of the tribe of Judah that inspired Aslan. And that imagery from Lewis and Tolkien and others is drawing from this epic image, even to the end of the Bible, judging and saving is spoken of in terms of an eagle and his wings. God is saying, I did that for you. I carried you to myself. And if you've seen a great eagle, you can picture its talons that, that hold fast, that are not going to let go. And, and here, bringing to himself, carrying and then caring for his own. They were snatched out of horrible Egypt through the howling winds. The Lord covered them. And while he did that, he was keeping his eye on them. Turn, turn to Deuteronomy 32, if you would. Because the same writer Moses uses that same image and he fills out more of what it means for God and his people. This is looking back now on the Exodus. Moses is writing at the end of his life, Deuteronomy 32 verse 10. Speaking of God and, and Israel like a, a helpless little one. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 32 
says, God found him, this is Israel, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. Listen to these images. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading its wings, catching them and then bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. An eagle is known for being alone. Birds of a feather flock together, but not eagles, apparently. They're known for their solo flights. They're also known for soaring like no other birds. They're known for being able to see things that other creatures cannot see from a great distance. They're also known for if their chicks are messed with, they will tear you up. And that's what God did. God attacked Pharaoh. God attacked Egypt like the strong claws of, a, of an eagle to attack. God attacked Egypt with his powerful hand is the image. And then he rescued his children and he, he carried them on his wings to the mountain nest for rest into a safe place where they were saved and secure in the Lord under his wings and in the center of his vision is the language Deuteronomy uses like Psalm 17 8 keep me as the apple of your eye hide me in the shadow of your wings isn't that great keep me there keep me as as the apple of your eye keep me safe under your wings that's the words of faith the apple of the eye means we're precious in his sight. And here we're protected under his care. We're close to his heart. And his wings are there to, to catch the little ones, even in the nest that might fear to fall. And he has the power to catch us when we fear will fall, when we fear our faith may fall. Here's what my study Bible says. The idea of fluttering or hovering shows God's loving care for Israel, like an eagle caring for its young, especially as they were taught to fly. That's what, when it talks about stirring them out of the nest. As they began to fly and had little strength, they would start to fall. So you, maybe you've seen them, they kind of go out there and then they start to, to fall. And it says at that point, the, the eagle and the, their nests are up high, swoops under them so that they land on its wings. And then it puts them out there again, and they try to fly, and then they start to fall down, and he swoops again, and he keeps them from falling. So they land on his wings, and, and so the Lord is carrying Israel. He's not letting them fall. He's been training them to fly on his wings of love and omnipotence. It's a close quote. I love that image. What an identity. What a security to know that this is the God who is revealing himself. The God who saves is the God who speaks this. He protects. He corrects. And the beginning of this chapter says, this happened in the third month after Israel came out of Egypt. And I was reading that eaglets are especially helpless in the first three or four months of their life. But it's interesting here. God's stirring them out of their comfort zones like he does us. And there's these continual tests and they keep having these tests and they keep falling, but he keeps catching them. He keeps carrying them. He keeps bringing them and he's brought them now to his mountain. He's doing all this and he does this for us to, to, to move us out of our comfort zones, to grow us and to show us that we can trust him and we can rise on wings of faith 
even when you feel weak, as Isaiah would say in chapter 40, that you might lose strength, you might feel feeble, and and like you're going to fall. He says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with, what? Wings like eagles. That's the image that's used by the prophet as well. When we're feeling like we're falling, feeling faint, feeling feeble, we need to let our thoughts rise to him. Let our thoughts soar as we think of who this God is. And even in the Old Testament, this was not just for Israel. In the book of Ruth, Boaz says this. This was her reputation as she came to Bethlehem. He says, may the Lord bless you, Yahweh, under whose wings you have come for refuge. She was coming to Bethlehem, not just for her mother-in-law. She was coming there to find refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the Lord. She converted and trusted in him, and that's the image coming under his wings. Jesus in the New Testament talks about gathering his people under his wings. And to the end of the Bible in Revelation 12, after it talks about the birth of Jesus, it talks about his people, quote, given the two wings of the great eagle to fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Kind of sound Exodus-like. But then to those who don't repent, Revelation 8 talks about judgment like plagues, like Exodus coming. And here's what it says. I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe. That's judgment to those who dwell on the earth. That's symbolic language there, but it's saying the same God of the Exodus is the same God to the end. And if you are not secure under his wings, if you have not been saved like Israel was here, if you're not secure in him, there is judgment that is coming. There's judgment coming. Just like the eagle sees all and the eagle can swiftly swoop in and snatch its prey that doesn't even see it coming. It comes in like a thief and grabs that fish out of the, out of the water God says, you've seen what I did to Egypt. But Revelation says, you'll you'll see God do that to you if you do not repent, if you do not turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone. Not trust in your good works, but know your only hope is for him to come and do it all, to rescue you, to save you. And your only hope to stay in his salvation is to stay in Christ alone. Not what you do, but what he's done for you. God's wrath is coming for those who do not seek refuge in him alone, who do not in faith come under his wings, who are unwilling to be gathered under Jesus, even as he spoke of Jerusalem. And when I was teaching through Ruth, I told this story from the Mount St. Helens eruption. We were at the museum there in Washington. And I remember seeing this vividly. It was a True story of when they were in the aftermath, the ash and that, that destroyed and wiped out basically all life in that area, including some human life. They found this, I don't know if it was petrified, but they found this bird. It was, I don't know if it was an eagle or an owl, but it's there, and the people going through the rubbish kind of knock it over. And as they knock it over, there's live little birds underneath it. And, and they realize that that was the safest place in the whole area, even in a volcano, to be gathered under the wings of the mother, and the, the mother there gave its life to save the life 
of those who had gathered under its wings. And of course, in a greater way, Jesus gave his life. He gave his life as the wrath of God poured out upon him on the cross. All those who were taking refuge in him are safe and secure completely from the wrath of God. And all those who come to him in refuge, all those who would come humbly like a little helpless eagle, it's a little chick that has no hope on its own if it's anywhere else, if it will come under those great wings, if it will come under its great Savior, it will be saved from the wrath to come. If you've never come in that way, I would urge you, come to Christ. Know it is him alone who can save. And then the application to the saved here is praise him. If you're secure in his wings, praise him. Like David in Psalm 57.1, My soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I take refuge. Or Psalm 91 talks about dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. My place of safety, it says, I trust him, for he will rescue, he will cover you with his feathers, he will shelter you with his wings. That's what the Almighty does when we're in his shadow, in his shelter. Psalm 63, 7, under your wings I rejoice. There's an old hymn that says, under his wings, oh, what precious enjoyment, till life's trials are over, sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me, resting in Jesus, I'm safe evermore. Under his wings I am safely abiding, though the night deepens and tempests are wild, still I can trust him, I know he will keep me, he has redeemed me, I am his child, under his wings, under his wings, who from his love can sever. Under his wings we can safely abide forever. Isn't that great truth? But it gets even greater as we keep going to number two. God's people are his special possession who are treasured. Verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. In other words, when God's people live out what God calls them to, when they act like God's people, they are shining and showing to the world the worth of God. And not just as God's private property. They're to go public as trophies of his glorious and priceless grace. All the earth is God's possession, he says. But Israel was to be his special possession for the world to see, for the earth to see. And this word for treasured possessions was used of King David, actually, when they were building God's house. He had his own personal private treasures, his most prized possessions that he comes and he brings to the house of the Lord, his, his, his treasures, his jewels, like, like we would say the crown jewels that are for others to see, that people would even travel to come and see. Here's what Malachi 3.17 prophesies of Israel. They shall be mine, says the Lord, on the day that I make them my jewels. And Isaiah 61 to 62 promised to future Israel the, quote, wealth of the nations known among the nations. All who see them shall acknowledge them that Israel is an offspring the Lord has blessed. Listen to this image. As a bride adorns herself with her jewels, 
Think of a bride decked out with jewels. Nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You shall be a crown of beauty and a royal diadem in the hand of the Lord. And you shall be called, listen to this, you shall be called my delight is in her. For the Lord delights in you. Isaiah says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Those he saves are his delight. Precious in his holy sight. And if you understand this, then you can say, let the world despise us. If we know the Lord delights in us. Amen. Exodus 19.5 looks back to Genesis 12, where this has already been promised. This was going to be expanded beyond Israel. All nations were going to be blessed with Israel. Genesis 12.3 or Deuteronomy 7.7, God has chosen you to be for him a people, a treasured possession from among all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Yahweh loved you and chose you not because you were greater in number, for you were fewer than all the peoples, but it was because of the love of Yahweh for you. Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. He will love you. He will bless you. And, and that language is echoed in Ephesians 1, isn't it? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Paul's going to say in that book, we are joint heirs. We participate in all of those blessings. He blessed us. He chose us. And in love, he predestined us to be his sons, to be his redeemed possession, his treasured possession, his very own to the praise of his glory. You can see that in Ephesians 1. So we're possessed in a way that the world can't even fathom. We are owned in a special way by the most loving being we could fathom, and we can't even fathom the fullness of it. We're part of a kingdom where the king treasures us. We're part of a kingdom that Jesus described, the kingdom itself, like a treasure in a field that you would sell all for joyously because of the joy of that treasure. This is what he brings us into, and this is what we read earlier. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says to the church, you are This is part of it, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you. And it goes on to say, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. This is the bigger picture as to why we need to live right and follow his his voice so that we would so that the Gentiles would even see our good works and glorify God, Peter says. Or as Jesus said, as his people obey his voice, and especially his commands to love one another, the world will see. The world is watching. We've been praying about our need to to speak to the world and to show the world these things. Because when the church acts like the church, we showcase the riches of God's grace to the world. And we give more of a platform to be able to speak about the reason for the hope that is within us. I heard from a number of people who had visited the memorial service last month who weren't believers, said they'd never been at a service like that with so much hope. And I was just thinking about that this weekend. There's probably five or six hundred people here at the memorial, but I think another thousand people have watched it 
online afterwards, many unbelievers, the world is watching. The world is watching God's people to see how we love. We need to continue to love, to see what we value, to see what, where our hope is found. And so keep, church, keep on doing these things because we're weak earthen vessels. But I love what 2 Corinthians 4 says. We have this treasure. We have this treasure in earthen vessels or jars of clay so that it shows the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's not about us. We're, we're weak. We're earthly. We're jars of clay. But it shows that it's not from us, and it shows there is an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The glory of eternity is what matters to us most of all. But we're still weak. We need each other's help. We need to support each other and keep doing that because we're just clay pots. We can get weak. We can crack. We can break. But we have this treasure of infinite worth and infinite value. And God chooses chooses to put his treasure in people like us. This is amazing. Titus 2.14 says, Our great glorious Savior Jesus Christ, quote, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things. We're not his special possession because of us, and it's not just for us. We need to speak these things to others. We need to do good because it's not about us. It's about him and it's about others. And he owns us. Remember, he owns you, so you're not your own. You've been bought with a price so you would glorify God in your life. So don't misread Exodus 19, verse 5. Like this is a verse about earning his love by works. What this is saying is that enabled by his love, we do works to fulfill this call to shine his worth to the earth. This isn't a salvation verse about how to get saved. It's about this is what you need to be as my saved people. Your mission by grace is you need to display. You need to do what I've called you to. You need to tell others about this to display and proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Are you doing that? Are you praying about how you can do that even this summer? Who can you tell these glories to of this salvation. But I think when we read even these statements like verse 5, we need to understand that Israel did fall short of this. They failed to obey. They failed to display him rightly. And so do I at times. But God's Son came. And he came to perfectly fulfill the law. He came to perfectly fulfill the covenant for us. And in Christ are all treasures, Scripture says. And those in Christ, it's because of Him that they can share in His treasures. And what makes us special, we're not better than anyone else, what makes us special to God is the precious blood of His Son shed for us to redeem us. Nothing in us, in and of ourselves. Christ loved the church. Christ died for the church, gave Himself up for the church to nourish and to cherish the church so even as we think about that, be careful how you speak of the church because you're speaking of, of the, the, the bride that Christ loved and gave himself up for and nourishes and cherishes and she's not all that 
She could be or should be, but we need to be very careful how we speak of the beloved bride of Christ. And 1 Peter 3.7 uses a word also applying to how husbands need to love their wives as Christ loves the church to love them like, like fine china, like that, that fragile vessel. We need to, men, treat our wives and love them in the way that Christ loves and treats his bride. And Peter actually talks several times about that word precious. There's precious value. He talks about there's precious and magnificent promises. But I'm not better than anyone else, neither are you. We're not more special than anyone else by nature. And yet God gave his special one and only son to, as the song says, make a wretch his treasure. I mean, that's what's amazing when you understand we're actually wretches by nature, wretched sinners by God's definition, and yet there is amazing grace that would save a wretch like me and would actually make that wretch a treasure. That's unbelievable. God didn't choose any of us because we were better or, or greater than others at just making a choice for him. None of us in this image jumped up on the eagle and we didn't grab the eagle's wings and make them flap so we could go to safety. No, we, he came and he grabbed a hold of us. He rescued us. He drew us out. He did it all and carried us all. It was by sovereign grace and love in Christ. And so give him all the glory. Treasure him. Listen to this. Treasure him who treasures you. What a thought that is. And there's more. Thirdly and finally, God's people are his set-apart people who are a kingdom of priests. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people. Israel was to be a holy nation. That means a set-apart people. They had a unique identity in redemptive history. For this purpose, that God had already lovingly carried them like eagle's wings. He had treasured them like crown jewels. But now this king says to them, you shall be to me a kingdom. The only one who can speak that way is the king of the kingdom. God had called Israel to be his son. He actually says, let my son go when he's calling him out of Egypt. Now he's calling his son, the king's son, to be a kingdom of priests. He's taken them from slavery to his royal treasury, and he's making them a priestly family, which is something we'll have to continue next time. There's so much in this chapter and book on priesthood and holiness for next time, but I want you to turn to Revelation 1. I'm going to be preaching from here tonight at Gold Country Retirement Center. Last week, when I wasn't with you, I was preaching at Community Bible Church, and this was the passage I preached on, and you can, again, pray for that church. But this, I was so struck at how the exalted Christ here in Revelation 1, he just puts this all together. Revelation 1, verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, that means he's the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us. Listen to this language. There's a lot of time in the scripture where it talks about God loved us. God so loved the world in the past tense. This is in the present tense and into the future. He loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to his God. 
This is Jesus, the one who is the ruler, it says, of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler over every earthly ruler. People who think they are ruling or in authority on this earth, whoever is in office in the months and years ahead, Jesus is the ruler over them. We need to know that even as we pray for our country and as are involved, that Jesus is still ruling above all. But notice, he loves us. And he's freed us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us a kingdom and priests to his God. And his kingdom is over all of earthly kingdoms. Go to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is that familiar question. I think we read it a couple of weeks ago. Is there anyone worthy? There is. He is. It should make us want to sing. And and that's what they do. Chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song saying, this is to Jesus, worthy are you. This is the the lion of Judah who is the lamb slain. They behold the lion who is the lamb. Then they say to him, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This kingdom of priests is actually going to reign on a renewed earth as royal priests on, on the earth. They shall reign. I believe this is the, the kingdom to come after Jesus comes and renews this earth. But let's end where our service began. First Peter 2, let me just read it to you again. Some of it chosen by God and precious. You also are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it says to you who believe he is precious. And part of what he calls them there is a royal priesthood. In the New King James it calls him his own special people. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You were once not God's people, but now you have been a part of that people. We've been grafted into the the people of God. This is the call of the kingdom to New Testament believers who are now a part of that one people of God, and they've all been called out of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved precious son. And we're all to be holy priests. We're all to offer up spiritual sacrifices. This isn't written to leaders. This is written to believers to offer up spiritual sacrifices and to be royal priests to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. And there's so many ways we could do that, but I think of how David, King David did that. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent or how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's proclaiming the excellencies of God in all the earth and all creation all around him. Or Paul in Philippians 3 verse 8, as he looks at all of his life, he says, I count all of it as loss compared to the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Or I think of Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, The Excellence of Christ. Helps us proclaim excellencies. He says, quote, The lion excels in strength. The lamb excels in meekness. The diverse excellencies of both the lion and the lamb so wonderfully meet in Christ. 
Such are the excellencies of Christ, infinite condescension, infinite glory, and lowest humility. Those things never meet in a created person, but Christ, who is also both God and man, those diverse excellencies are sweetly united, Edward says. And if you want to study that further, look up The Excellence of Christ by Jonathan Edwards. You can find it online. It's a sermon. But he goes through all of these excellencies that we don't have time today. And he says at the end of it, Christ will give himself to you by faith with all of those various excellencies that paradoxically meet together in him to your full and everlasting enjoyment. Why would you not come to this excellent one? He is the most excellent And he does all of this so that we would proclaim his excellencies. And so who can you tell his excellent greatness to in the gospel? Think about someone right now, this summer, this week, who you want to tell some of the excellencies of what God has done. This is our identity as believers, the saved, secure in his wings, a special possession who are treasured, his set-apart people who are a, a kingdom of priests. And at the end of that, to proclaim his excellencies. Our identity is not in self. It's not in sexuality or anything else or in sin. It's in the Savior who gives us salvation and security as we are under his wing. The, the world may see us as ugly and unworthy of their time, but in the beautiful Savior, we have value. The apple of the Lord's eye. Let the world despise me if the Lord delights in me. God sees us in Christ, our treasure and treasures us as his crown jewels, as his prized possession. He rejoices over his people. The prophet says he delights in his people. He cherishes his bride. Paul says Jesus loves us dearly. He says himself. And he makes us a kingdom of the beloved. So I pray this moves us to obey him and to proclaim him to a dark world. And all God's priests said, Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Our God, we stand amazed, but not amazed enough, Lord. We are going to praise you now, but not enough, Lord. Help us to lift you up. But above all, we thank you that you have lifted us up in Christ. Help us to keep looking to him and our identity that is in him. We pray these things for his sake and for his glory and for his excellency. Amen.